The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. On a snowy January night in 2018, while most people were fast asleep and still enveloped in their post-holiday glow, the crack of a pistol shattered the silence of the frigid air. In a cozy little home in Stevenson, Alabama, a man had been shot once, twice, and then a third time before he fell. As he lay bleeding on the kitchen floor and as his shooter worked frantically to save his life, no one could be prepared for the harrowing events that were about to unfold. Join me now as we examine the Stand Your Ground case of Brittany Smith, a single mother working hard to get her life back on track. You'll learn about the violent events that culminated in her decision to use deadly force in her own home. Was it self-defense or was it murder? If you've ever been to a late-night convenience store in the wee hours, the atmosphere is either completely hushed or roaming with excitement. Sometimes it's even downright strange. At a Mapco gas station in Stevenson, Alabama, there'd been a few customers here and there, and it seemed to be another quiet shift. But Tuesday, January 16th, 2018, wouldn't wind up being that sort of night. Peach Painter was working behind the counter when Brittany Smith, a regular, walked in around 1 in the morning. Outside, a car was waiting for her, a man in the driver's seat and another in the back. Paige couldn't help but notice Brittany was in rough shape, like she'd been on the losing end of a nasty fight. She watched as Brittany purposely avoided a police officer in the store and made her way up to the counter. That's when Paige asked her what happened. Brittany asked for a scrap piece of paper and jotted down the name of a man who'd not only threatened her own life, but her entire family's. That is, if she told anyone about what had happened to her. Before leaving the store with a pack of cigarettes, Brittany slid the note to Paige and quietly whispered, If I'm dead in the morning, this is who did it. As Brittany eased into the car waiting outside, Paige opened the piece of paper and read the name. In the northeastern corner of Alabama, near the Tennessee border, sits the five-square-mile city of Stevenson, a relatively small community with a population of just under 2,000 people, with mountains on one side, wooded plateaus on the other, and the expanse of Crow Creek to the south. The landscape still has the picturesque charm of rural living. Despite the recent economic downturn, residents still turn out in force for the annual Depot Days, a festival to celebrate the culture of their city and the history as a railroad hub. This is where Brittany Smith and her brother Chris grew up, raised by their single mother, Ramona McCauley. Trying to make ends meet, 
Ramona worked up to 16 hours a day, but still could never afford to move the family out of low-income housing. Although times were tough growing up, Brittany was a smart girl who loved school and was on the honor roll. At 19, Brittany got married and went off to have four beautiful children. But the relationship with her husband was tumultuous, and they split up and got back together too many times to count. In 2012, while Brittany was in her mid-twenties, she lost a son only 45 minutes after he was born to Potter's sequence, a lack of sufficient amniotic fluid during pregnancy. After losing her baby, Brittany spiraled into a deep depression and started using methamphetamines to cope with her devastating loss, resulting in her losing custody of her remaining children. Drug use is more common in poverty-stricken areas like Stevenson, where over a quarter of the residents live below the poverty line. And for addicts trying to recover, being surrounded by drugs and users in such an environment can be extremely challenging. Meth in particular is a highly addictive drug with severe withdrawal symptoms and high relapse rates. Here to help us understand the devastating realities of methamphetamine addiction is clinical psychologist Dr. Christina Frizzani. Meth is such a devastating drug, probably the worst that we deal with in the mental health field because it pulls people who try it into a vicious cycle. There are so many reasons that meth has infiltrated communities throughout the United States, especially poorer and more rural communities where there's less to do and jobs can be fewer and farther between. It used to be more common in California and Hawaii, which were closer to countries that originally sourced meth like Japan during World War II and then Mexico in the 60s and 70s. But in the early 2000s, Americans realized that meth could be made locally using household products and drugstore supplies, like the ephedrine and cold medicines, which made it more accessible than heroin or cocaine. It could just be made locally and for cheap. Meth is extremely addictive because it creates a negative feedback loop. As you probably know, a positive feedback loop is reinforcing because you get rewards that cause you to come back for more. Like if you exercise and eat healthy and you feel energized and happy, then you sleep better, you feel good. So you want to keep up those behaviors. That's a positive feedback loop. But when you use meth, you might feel euphoric while you're high. But when you start to come down, you feel irritable and paranoid, like you're crawling out of your skin and you need more and more to get rid of these sensations. And then even worse, meth intoxication, especially at high doses, can cause symptoms that resemble a psychotic disorder, like hallucinations of voices yelling and criticizing. When the user is coming down, they might experience paranoia and dread that something bad is about to happen, so they relapse over and over again to get rid of these awful feelings and discomforts, which creates a negative feedback loop. The fact that it's easier to access and cheaper than other drugs just really adds to the vicious cycle. Yet even in the throes of addiction, Brittany enrolled herself into rehab, determined to get clean. Wanting to regain custody of her children became her driving force to kick the habit. Relapsing more than once, Brittany kept trying. Visitations with her children weren't enough. She needed them with her. But for that, Brittany needed a home, needed a job, needed to stay clean, 
and needed stability if she wanted her family back. Getting sober was a grueling process, but Brittany knew it was going to be worth it. She was a fighter, and she came up swinging every time. Brittany put in the work to succeed, and finally, everything was looking up. She landed a good stable job at a flooring company and found a four-bedroom house to rent. Brittany was now 30 years old and determined to put the chaos and drama of her 20s behind her. On January 10th, 2018, Child Welfare Services gave her a home inspection and she passed. She was now one step closer to regaining custody of her kids. That's when she decided to get a puppy for the new home. Although no one could erase the mistakes of her past, a new puppy would go a long way toward filling her home with love and laughter she desperately wanted. Cruising Facebook one day, Brittany came across someone she'd known as a teenager, 38-year-old Todd Smith, a dog breeder who happened to have puppies for sale. The timing seemed perfect, so Brittany sent a message to him. When Todd started getting messages from Brittany, he hoped there might be a chance for something more than just a business transaction, and he told her so. But Brittany politely turned him down and steered the conversation back to the puppy. That's all she was interested in, and Tom agreed to sell her one. On January 14th, Brittany asked her mother Ramona for a ride to Todd's house to pick up the new puppy, a little female named Athena. At the time, she didn't have a car and still relied on friends and family for transportation. That should have been the end of things with Todd, but the following day on January 15th, 2018, Brittany received a frantic phone call from him. Todd told her he was stranded by a nearby park with nowhere to stay and that she was the only one who could help him. So he asked if he could stay at her place. Against her better judgment, Brittany agreed to help him out, offering him a spot on her couch, but she made it clear that the arrangement was for only one night. She called her brother Chris and asked if he'd go to the park and pick him up. It would prove to be the worst decision of Brittany, Chris, and Todd's lives. Although Chris agreed to pick up Todd as Brittany asked, he wasn't exactly comfortable with the idea of him staying at her place, and he wasn't shy about telling Brittany that. Even though he was four years younger than her, Chris still felt the need to protect his big sister. Regardless of his apprehensions, Chris picked up Todd and dropped him off at Brittany's. Brittany's account of what happened next was later documented in court files. At first, she said, her and Todd just started out making small talk, a conversation that eventually turned into them each sharing about their struggles with addiction. But when Brittany told him about the positive changes sobriety had brought to her life, Todd snapped and flew into a rage, accusing her of thinking she was better than him. Before she knew it, Todd headbutted her and chased her into her bedroom, where he then strangled her until she blacked out. When Brittany regained consciousness, she realized to her horror that Todd was raping her. When she began pleading with him to stop, Todd mocked her and continued on. So Brittany did what she did best and fought back, 
scratching Todd so hard that some of her fingernails ripped loose. But it was useless. Brittany was much smaller and now weakened by being assaulted. As Brittany continued trying to fight Todd off, he tried breaking her neck. And when that didn't work, he strangled her with his hands until she blacked out again. Amazingly, Brittany survived the brutal assault, and the second time she regained consciousness, Todd was still on top of her, continuing to rape her. Todd told her he'd kill her if she even breathed wrong, and so this time, Brittany decided it was safer to wait him out. When Todd was finished, he told her that if she told anybody about what had happened, he'd kill her and her entire family. And then, his demeanor changed completely, as if nothing had happened, and asked for a cigarette. Brittany was all out of cigarettes, and Todd had none of his own, which meant they needed to go out and buy some. But neither of them had a car to drive to the Mapco gas station, one of the only places still open past 1am. So Brittany called her mother and asked for a ride. Not only was it late, the tone of her daughter's voice sounded off to Ramona. Having worked all day, Ramona decided to send Chris out to get them. And although Chris wasn't exactly thrilled about being volunteered for the late night trip, he agreed nevertheless and drove over to Brittany's place. If Chris had noticed the state Brittany was in, he didn't have much to say about it. But there's no way of telling what he might have been thinking. For families who've seen their loved ones fall into dark places, sometimes it can be better not to ask questions when the answers might turn out to be painful truths or even hurtful lies. We asked Dr. Frisani if she could shed some light on the difficulties family members face when trying to assist a loved one suffering from addiction. Supporting a family member who abuses meth is a delicate balancing act. Think of the concept of homeostasis, when a family member disrupts the dynamics that everybody's used to, other families sort of pick up the slack or change their own behavior to try to reset that balance and reach homeostasis. So as you can imagine, this causes discord with the people trying to support the family member who is using. One minute, the person is promising never to use again, and then the next, they're reactive, angry, and self-destructive. Abusers of meth can also be violent, they might steal belongings, or vacillate between rational when they're sober and open to getting help, and irrational when they're intoxicated. So it's very confusing for the, their loved ones. This kind of drug abuse gets even more complicated when you factor in mental health struggles like anxiety from trauma or depression, bipolar disorder, and it is likely that someone who abuses substances also has another psychiatric diagnosis. We call this comorbidity because they go hand in hand. It's like which came first, the chicken or the egg. You can see how patterns like this would sever relationships. It's much different to assert boundaries with people that you're a degree removed from, say neighbors or coworkers, but people really go the extra mile for close friends and family. There's a moral dilemma. Should you support a family member through thick and thin, even if it means condoning their self-destructive behavior? Or should you put your foot down and watch them suffer temporarily, but hope that in the long run, it helps them make better choices? 
If you have a family member in the vicious cycle of meth abuse, you might not speak to them for a while. You might worry about them incessantly. And these things really do disrupt the homeostasis for everyone involved. As Chris, Brittany, and Todd headed to the gas station, Brittany rode in the front seat, unusually quiet. Todd rode in the back. When they arrived, Brittany went inside to buy the cigarettes. Paige Painter, who was working behind the counter that night, would later recall Brittany looking nervous, edgy, and bouncing around. One of her artificial nails had been torn off, the nail underneath exposed and bleeding. Her neck was raw and red. Brittany told Paige and another customer, keep talking, act normal, and asked for a piece of paper, writing down the contact information of her friends and mother, describing the brutal assault she just endured and that the person who did it was still trying to kill her. Brittany then used her phone to call another friend. She asked him to come pick her up, but he told her he was at work and suggested she call police. Paige indicated towards the officer that was in the MAPCO at that very moment, but Brittany hushed her, saying it would just make things worse. Brittany didn't want to get the police involved. Finally, Paige suggested Brittany just stay with her at the store, but Brittany replied, I can't, it's my house. I can't just not go back to my house. With that, Brittany told Paige, if I'm dead in the morning, this is who did it and she scrawled one last name and address down on the piece of paper before handing it over and leaving with her cigarettes. The name, of course, was Todd Smith. Brittany then got back into the car with Todd and Chris and texted multiple people, telling them that Todd was trying to kill her. When the trio got back to Brittany's, Todd got out first, and for a brief moment, Brittany was alone with her brother in the car. Brittany told Chris he had to go back to MAPCO. She told him he needed to talk to Paige and then got out of the vehicle. Once inside, Brittany found another moment to herself and exchanged a series of texts with her mother, Ramona. Brittany. Mom, Todd has tried to kill me literally. Don't act like anything is wrong. Call MAPCO and ask for Paige. Ramona. Okay, where is your brother? I'm fine, he is leaving. I'll be there in a few minutes. Tell Chris to come get me. Call Mapco and tell Paige stop. No cops. He is leaving. Don't come over, please. She's not going to call the cops. I'm going to take him home, not Chris. No, do not come over here. Please stop. I'm fine. If you would quit this BS, your kids would be home in no time. From this exchange, it seemed Ramona was suspicious that Brittany had been doing things she knew she shouldn't be, perhaps relapsing into her addictions. Ramona texted Brittany again, saying, I'm not calling the police. You call Paige yourself and tell her you're fine before she does. Meanwhile, Chris was on his way back to the MAPCO to talk to Paige. But before he arrived, Ramona called the store and talked to Paige. She filled Ramona in about what was going on, and after their conversation, Ramona sent one more message to Brittany. I called her. She's not calling the police. Calm down and go to bed and sleep it off. When Chris arrived at MAPCO, Paige filled him in on what had happened to Brittany. She also told him that his mother wanted him to go pick her up so they could both go over to Brittany's house and defuse the situation. But Chris was furious and decided to drive back directly to his sister's house on his own to handle things. 
When Chris returned to Brittany's house, he didn't walk in empty-handed. He walked through the kitchen door, carrying a registered 22 caliber handgun, a weapon he kept in the glove box of his car. Minutes later, at 1.37 a.m., Jackson County received a 911 call from an extremely panicked Brittany Smith. During the call, Brittany tried explaining the chaotic scene that had just unfolded in her home. She told the operator that someone who tried to kill her had been shot but was still breathing. She said that her brother had come over and tried to stop the assault. According to court documents, the operator asked if Brittany had been raped, and Brittany responded, No, he did not rape me. He was trying to, and he choked me out, and I was like seen black and my brother came in and they got into an argument and my brother has his pistol permit and they were fighting and then he got shot. The conversation was full of fits and starts with hardly any clear information getting through. But when Brittany was asked where the shooter was, she was able to tell them, he's right here with me. He's my brother. He's not going to jail. He was trying to protect me. While first responders headed their way, Brittany and Chris performed CPR and chest compressions on Todd, but nearly half an hour later, when police arrived, he'd already died on the scene, with gunshot wounds to the arm, shoulder, and chest. The medical examiner later found 840 nanograms of methamphetamines per milliliter of blood in Todd's system, which is a shockingly high dose four times what would be considered an average amount. Also in his system were Xanax and alcohol. Scratch marks were found on Todd's body, corroborating Brittany's claims that she tried defending herself during the sexual assault. Chris was taken to the Jackson County Jail and charged with Todd Smith's murder, while Brittany was taken to Crisis Services of Northern Alabama, where a rape kit was administered. In total, 33 injuries were documented on Brittany's body, including bite marks on her face and neck, bruises on her head and feet, finger marks on her thighs, and handprints around her throat. She was also covered in petechia, tiny red spots under the skin, caused by burst blood vessels, a sign of strangulation. While it was clear Brittany had been physically assaulted, the nurse couldn't say with certainty whether or not she'd been sexually assaulted, finding no evidence of genital trauma or semen. But the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. The nurse was quick to note that there are often cases of sexual assault where trauma or semen aren't present. And in Brittany's case, it seemed to corroborate her version of events that she'd remained either unconscious or passive out of self-preservation through much of the attack. But when the nurse offered Brittany a urine test for drugs and sexually transmitted infections, she declined. And while the nurse was seeing the evidence, she felt it corroborated Brittany's story. The lead investigators for the sheriff's department took a different option. He felt the bruising on Brittany was inconsistent with the story she told of nearly being killed by Todd and was quoted saying, Honestly, I would have thought there would be more. When the Department of Forensic Sciences tested Brittany's beddings for Todd's DNA, none was found. At 10 a.m., Brittany gave her first official statement to the Jackson County Sheriff's Department and told them 
Todd had physically and sexually assaulted her. She also told the lieutenant she didn't know how her brother had found out about the assault, even though she'd been the one who'd sent Chris to talk to Paige. In her first written statement, Brittany claimed that all three of them entered her house and she went to the living room while Chris and Todd went to the kitchen and began fighting. But before Brittany could get back to the kitchen to intervene, she heard a gun go off. It was certainly a simplified version of events, but it wouldn't be Brittany's last statement. The next day, on January 17th, Brittany walked into the station and made another statement to an investigator. My brother's in jail for something that I did to try to protect me. In her confession, Brittany revealed that Chris had come to her home with a gun, and after firing it once into the kitchen cabinet, he began fighting with Todd. From the court document, she stated, Todd and Chris were beating the hell out of each other, and Todd had Chris in a headlock. That's when Brittany says she grabbed the gun, and when she was able to get a clean shot, she shot Todd. She said that after firing the first shot, she shot again, because the first one didn't seem to have much of an effect. But the second shot did. Todd fell backwards onto the kitchen floor. Brittany then admitted to asking her brother to wipe down the gun for fingerprints. In total, five shots were fired and five bullets were recovered. One in the kitchen cabinet, one from the floor, and three from Todd's body. Needless to say, this was an unexpected turn of events. After making her second statement, Brittany was charged with murder, while her brother Chris was charged with making a false report and tampering with evidence. And so now, the question became, would the justice system believe Brittany's story? Just a 20-minute drive from Stevenson, Alabama is Jasper, Tennessee, where Todd Smith was born in March of 1979. Growing up, Todd loved the simple pleasures of the outdoors, spending long days running wild through the beautiful country landscape. But things became more complicated for Todd when his parents divorced and he began living with his father. By the time he reached high school, Todd was experimenting with drugs and alcohol, spiraling into heavy substance abuse and exposing his violent side. Todd became known for getting into brutal fights, often winning, refusing to give up until at least one of them was no longer standing. A violent streak that spilled into his family life with Todd assaulting his father on multiple occasions, ending with him either being thrown out or arrested, only to return and repeat the cycle over again. In 2002, Todd married a woman named Paige Parker, a marriage that only lasted a year, long enough, however, to leave a lasting impact on her. Paige told an online radio host that just two weeks after they were married, Todd broke Paige's nose. For most of their relationship, he physically and sexually abused her, held her captive, and tormented her. On multiple occasions, like with his father, Todd was arrested for domestic assault, but spent no time in jail for the charges. When Paige put a protection order in place and finally ended the relationship once and for all, Todd continued to abuse other women that entered his life, including one he fathered a daughter with and others that wanted nothing to do with him. By 2018, 
Todd had a rap sheet totaling more than 70 arrests and countless complaints against him. From domestic assault to drug charges to the mistreatment of his dogs, which he bred to sell. The gateway for Brittany Smith to re-enter his life was through Facebook when she sent him a message about buying a puppy. Brittany was given a court-appointed lawyer who encouraged her to take a plea deal for manslaughter, but she refused. She intended to use Alabama's stand-your-ground defense. According to Alabama law, a person is allowed to use deadly force, either in self-defense or defense of another, if they reasonably believe that a person is using or is about to use unlawful deadly force. Stand Your Ground also states that a person has no duty to retreat from the encounter. It was the very situation Brittany believed she'd been in. She'd shot a man who was an imminent threat to her brother Chris. But Brittany's lawyer would not submit this defense for months. In fact, he'd go a completely different route. In October 2018, Brittany's lawyer filed a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. Brittany said this was done without her consent or knowledge, though her lawyer denies the accusation. Two months later in December, Brittany's mental state was evaluated. She'd later claim that the state psychologist laughed at her while she described her assault. Ultimately, in February 2019, Brittany was deemed unfit to stand trial and was eventually transferred to a psychiatric facility where she would spend the next six months. Elizabeth Flock, the writer of the New Yorker article, How Far Can Abused Women Go to Protect Themselves, visited Brittany there and reported on the horrifying conditions. Brittany relates stories of abuse of patients by staff, sexual assault, and rampant violence. By September 2019, Brittany was released from the hospital and after another short stint in jail, was returned home on bail to her mother, Ramona. On January 14, 2020, Brittany's Stand Your Ground hearing began. This was a pretrial motion where a judge would hear her case and the burden of proof would be on Brittany and her team to prove that she'd shot Todd Smith in self-defense. If her defense was accepted, Brittany would receive immunity from the murder charges and the case would be dropped immediately. That meant she'd walk out of the courtroom a free woman. But if the judge wasn't fully convinced, Brittany's case would go to trial, where she'd be able to make her defense claims in front of a jury. At the hearing, Brittany did her best to keep her composure. When asked why she told the 911 dispatcher she'd been almost raped instead of raped, Brittany said she didn't remember even making the 911 call, but felt scared, ashamed, and embarrassed about being raped. Her lawyers argued PTSD made many victims reluctant to admit to sexual assault. When asked if Todd had any weapons, Brittany replied that there'd been several, including his hands, his penis, and his mouth. But the prosecution countered that Todd's body was not a deadly weapon. And while this is technically true, it should be noted that nearly 5% of all murders in the United States are committed with nothing more than a person's bare hands or feet. 
In addition to Brittany's testimony, two witnesses were called to testify about Todd's past violent and abusive behavior, but their testimonies were ruled inadmissible. During the trial, support for Brittany came in the way of women marching in front of the courthouse with signs, along with messages on her social media recounting their own stories of abuse and the failures of local law enforcement and the justice system to help them. After hearing Brittany's testimony, Judge Jennifer Holt had the ability to dismiss Brittany's case entirely. Instead, she denied her stand-your-ground defense, handing down a critical 19-page order that detailed her decision. This is from the court document. Upon consideration of all the evidence, the court finds that the defendant has given inconsistent accounts of the events surrounding Todd's death, beginning with the 911 call on January 16, 2018, and has attempted to alter or destroy evidence. The court further finds that the defendant's testimony about material facts was significantly at odds with the physical evidence, exhibits, and other witness testimony. There was little doubt that Brittany had been brutally assaulted by Todd earlier in the evening. But in order to use the stand-your-ground defense, she needed to prove beyond a preponderance of the evidence that Todd had been an imminent threat to her life or the life of her brother Chris at the exact moment she pulled the trigger. In the eyes of the court, Brittany's credibility had been questioned due to the inconsistencies and changes to her story over time. Ultimately, the judge decided Brittany's case didn't meet the requirements for an immediate dismissal of her charges. Instead, Brittany would have to go to trial, where it would be up to her lawyers to convince a jury. Critics of the judge's decision argue that this was just one more example of stand-your-ground laws having an inherent bias against women and minorities. Dr. Frasani explains the various reasons why an individual like Brittany might give inconsistent accounts in the wake of a traumatic experience. There's a never-ending range of how people naturally handle a traumatic experience. You can hear a 911 call made for the right reasons and be positive that it's fake and staged, and then hear another one that actually is fake and staged and feel positive that that one is genuine. Reactions are impacted by personality and relationship dynamics, Something that can't be ignored in this case is the fact that the stand your ground law is more frequently asserted by men. In this case, it seems like Chris and Brittany were aware of the disadvantage of being a woman and in a panic, they tried to avoid this aspect of the situation by focusing on the fight between the two men. Also, it's common for rape victims to deny having been raped, especially when it's happened before. If the survivor has been in situations where their safety hasn't been taken seriously, or their reports are questioned or even held against them, it makes sense that they would alter the story to try to get help without jeopardizing their own credibility and avoid sharing the violence that occurred. Just keep it simple, keep it palatable, and maybe they'll have a better chance of being taken seriously. If you don't trust the authorities or the system itself has contributed to your trauma, you might tell your story in a way that is more likely to be interpreted a certain way. After a vicious sexual assault, a person would be likely either shaking, having racing thoughts, or simply numb. 
Brittany's defense team tried having the judge recused from the case, arguing that the judge's public 19-page ruling would make it difficult for Brittany to receive a fair and unbiased trial. But the judge disagreed, and her decision was upheld, setting Brittany's trial for November 2020. In April 2020, Brittany's mother Ramona pawned her mother's wedding ring and bonded her car title to raise money needed to get Brittany released on bail until her trial. But while she was out, Brittany relapsed on methamphetamines and her bail was revoked in September when she was charged with second-degree arson after setting fires inside a mobile home in Stevenson, causing minor damage. On October 9th, just weeks before her trial, Brittany accepted a plea deal instead of taking her case to trial. A jury would never get the chance to hear her side of the story. Brittany's mother Ramona has stated that the reason Brittany took the plea deal was because they finally broke her down and scared her. Officially, Brittany was sentenced to 20 years for Todd's murder and 15 years for arson, but the deal she received would actually be much less. The terms were set so she'd serve 18 months of jail time, followed by 18 months of house arrest, and then five years of supervised probation. And because of the time she'd already served, that meant Brittany had seven months remaining of jail time. It was a deal that forced Brittany to admit to murder legally, something that emotionally devastated her, because she believed along with her family and thousands of advocates and supporters who'd heard her story, that she'd done nothing wrong. She'd killed a violent man, high in methamphetamines, who'd violently attacked and raped her, and was now fighting with her brother. Brittany Smith is just one of the many women who've taken plea deals after killing their abuser, rather than risk a trial. And according to a statistical analysis of stand-your-ground cases in nearby Florida, women are twice as likely as men to be convicted when using the stand-your-ground defense. In May 2021, Brittany was released from jail and began serving her house arrest, but unfortunately had a relapse involving methamphetamines in March 2022. This resulted in Brittany ordered back to jail for nine months. Moving forward to December 2022, Brittany was released into her mother's care, but was required to wear an ankle monitor at the cost to her of $10 a day until October 2023 and undergo random drug testing. Surviving on a $520 monthly social security income, Brittany had to allocate more than half of it to cover the $10 daily ankle monitor cost. Additional expenses Brittany has incurred included mandatory phone fees to keep in contact with her probation officer, drug testing, and a substantial $26,000 debt for restitution, legal fees, and jail time. Living in public housing in Alabama, Brittany, her mother, and brother struggled to make ends meet resorting to desperate measures such as payday loans and selling possessions. And because Brittany's family lives in government housing and Brittany is a convicted felon, they're being evicted and currently using a GoFundMe to raise the money needed to find a new place to live and start over. Ramona states on the GoFundMe that the main reason she's asking for help 
is to get their family back together again. She also states that once Brittany gets back on her feet and feels stronger, she wants to become an advocate for other women in similar situations. Navigating the path to family reunification can be an arduous journey, made even more challenging by the formidable obstacles of addiction and past trauma. Despite Brittany's tumultuous past, it's critical to acknowledge that the healing process is not always linear. Even so, Brittany is being committed to being reunited with her children and is attempting drug rehabilitation. Follow The Minds of Madness on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To support the show and get access to ad-free episodes, extra content, and Patreon-exclusive episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. To find us on Instagram and Facebook, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter using the handle at madnesspod. And also, by checking out our sponsors and using our promo codes, you're also helping support the show. We've got all the links in our episode notes. So until next week... Thanks for listening.